Um, if you've got children or grandchildren or you've been around children, it's amazing how one is so different from the other. If you have children of your own, uh, you've no doubt experienced just the marvel that two parents, the exact same two parents, can produce children that are so different from one another. It's like, well, what changed? You know, did you eat pizza versus green beans, uh, you know, for this particular child? What, 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 what made the difference? Turns out it just seems to be God's sovereignty, doesn't it? And it's so strange how that, uh, how that, that mix and marvelous how the Lord can bring about completely different personalities. Um, and it's amazing how they each respond differently to discipline. One child, you know, our two daughters are so different in personality. And uh, of course, they're both perfect, but uh, otherwise, they're very different in personality. But one of them, you can just look at them and they'll start crying. And the other one, I mean, you got to fight them tooth and nail to, uh, to get any progress on the discipline. I just I've never been able to figure that out, at, but how the Lord creates such different personalities, not only just in their temperate in, temperate, uh, temperament in general, but how they respond to discipline. Now, it's easy to look at our kids and to sort of smile and say, boy, isn't that wonderful, and then realize we were kids once, and in the same token, we're still God's children. And He's made us amazingly different, even though we have, in some sense, the same Heavenly Father. He has made us uh, so different, and we respond to, to discipline very differently. What does it take for God to change your life? Well, I mean, what does it really take? Think about maybe a better question is, when's the last time your life was absolutely changed by God? What did it take to make that happen? It'd be nice if all we had to do is just, you know, read the Bible and say, oh, look at this life-changing truth. I'm changed. <laughs> the reality is it often takes those life-changing truths in the context of life in the context of the hard realities of our stubbornness, of our strong will, of our desire to do things our way, and sort of like God building a stalactite deep beneath the surface of the earth, drip by drip, drop by drop of truth, of time, of discipline, God works beneath the surface of our hearts to change us. And boy, that takes time, doesn't it? It takes a lot of time and often it takes a lot of pain. Well, in the Bible, for Jacob, it took a fight. <laughs> it took a brawl, and actually several. And I'd like for us to look at that, and of course not just to look at Jacob, but also to immediately do our best to make that application to our lives. Because that's why Jake, one of the reasons Jacob's story is recorded for us. So let's open to Genesis Chapter 27, Genesis 27. We've completed our study of the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 all the way to 25. And we actually looked at Genesis 26 as well at one point when we were talking about Abraham and Abimelech down in Gerar. 
Uh, we talked about the fact that Isaac also went to Gerar and actually repeated Abraham's mistake there. So in a sense, we have come, Genesis 12 all the way through 26. The Bible doesn't give a lot of text to Isaac. It gives a whole lot to Abraham and gives a whole lot more to Jacob. I don't know if you've ever done the math, but half of the book of Genesis, Genesis 25 through 50, is Jacob. In fact, in fact even the Joseph story is really the, the Jacob story, if you look at it from a, from a grand perspective. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in, as we're introduced to the Joseph story, Genesis 37 actually says, now these are the, this is the tale of Jacob. So it's really about Jacob. Uh, and actually, it's about a much grander theme, but uh, the emphasis is on on Jacob. And so Jacob gets half of Genesis. He is a very significant character, which is sort of ironic because we're going to only talk about him today. <laughs> but he is uh, he is so significant in the life, of course, of the history of Israel, as his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, as we'll see. And, of course, from Jacob came the twelve tribes of Israel. His twelve sons became the twelve tribes. Well, Genesis 27, we're familiar with the first part of the chapter where Jacob uh, steals or deceives his way into getting the blessing and the birthright away from his older brother, his older twin brother Esau. And Isaac is duped into thinking that uh, Jacob is Esau. You know the story. And Rebekah is the one that put Jacob up to this to begin with, Jacob's mother, Isaac's wife. It's uh, an amazingly dysfunctional family. I mean, we look at this family and we, we're just sort of amazed that this is the, the seedbed for the tribes of Israel. It looks more like some, um, some cult that we might see as we're driving down the road or some uh, some sitcom that we'd laugh at on television and thank God that we're not like that. The reality is we are like this. Uh, we have the same sort of struggles in our hearts that Jacob did in, in his life. So let's start in Genesis 27 all the way down at verse 41. This is right after Jacob stole the, uh, the, the blessing, as it were, from Esau, look at the look at the response, and then we'll continue. Verse forty-one. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, "The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob." Now, when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. I like that. It was her idea, but yet you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? This family, this dysfunctional family, um, I don't know if you have really thought about it, but think about the sins that you struggle with. And uh, aren't they very similar to your parents? They can be. They very much can be, because we are hardwired from our youth to, to repeat what we see 
we our our parents imprint on us not just their affections but also to many extent their faults and we see this happening in Jacob's life Jacob learned to be the master deceiver from his mom Rebecca was this way and Jacob learned it and it continued as he took it to uh to Padanaram or to Haran and uh, con- continued the trickery well, the text shows us here that as a result of this trickery, Jacob, the deceiver, had to flee from the murderous intentions of his brother Esau. And it's interesting that Rebekah tells him, tells Jacob to stay there just a few days. <laughs> it would be 20 years before Jacob would come back. And here's the sad truth. He would never see his mom again. This idea of hers to steal the blessing and it was so unnecessary as well because the Lord had told Isaac already, and told Rebekah already, that the younger will serve the older. I'm sorry, the older will serve the younger. That Esau would serve Jacob. The blessing was already, in a sense, promised to Jacob, and yet Rebekah felt the need still to manipulate the situation to make it happen in her time schedule as opposed to God's. Boy, we saw that in Abraham's life. And we also see it in ours. We'll look in chapter 28, starting in verse 10. And uh, we'll continue the story there. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there. Because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the place, uh, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Well, before we talk about this uh, very significant moment, let me show you where this happened. Uh, Let's see if I can share my screen here. All right, looks like you're seeing it. This map here shows you the whole uh, Middle East area. And of course, Israel is this section right here. But the arrow that we're seeing shows Abraham's journey. When Abraham left uh, Ur in this area, down by the Persian Gulf, 
He traveled up here and he settled for a time here in Haran. Haran is up here in eastern Turkey. And then from there, God called him to come down and eventually made his way into Canaan. Well, this is, this is Jacob's destination. He is headed from Beersheba, which is not pointed out down here on the map, but it's about eh, right where my pointer is. So he's going to travel from there all the way up to Haran. And if we look at the next one, this is a close-up of Israel. And if I can make it a little bigger. There we go. You can see Beersheba where he left from, and then he made his way up north along this way of the patriarchs, the main road there, to what is what was renamed as Bethel. Now, if you notice this, it's significant because this is Bethel and Ai, which was also a place, if you remember, in Abraham's life where Abraham stopped. And that's very significant because this is a place where God spoke to Abraham and uh, where God made a promise to Abraham that the land that he sees would be the land that God would give him. Well, well, the Lord reiterates that exact same promise to Jacob in the exact same place there at Bethel. And it's, uh, it's so significant in Jacob's life, he'll never forget this. In fact, on his deathbed, if we were to turn to Genesis chapter 48, we would see that uh, Jacob mentions this to Joseph as Jacob is on his deathbed, that God appeared to him there at Bethel. The name Bethel means house of God. And so when, when, when Jacob says this is God's house, he is giving it this, this new name. He's giving it the name house of God, Bethel. And he also mentions it's the gate of heaven. Uh, and it foreshadows a couple of very significant things. Because remember, part of the Abraham blessing was the land. In fact, this is mentioned again to Jacob. And when Joshua brought the people into the land, after they conquered Jericho, what area did they come up to? They came up to the area of Bethel and Ai. Remember the battle of Ai? Well, Bethel and Ai are right beside each other. And so uh, the land, that, that became not only the gateway, in a sense, to heaven, but it was also the gateway into the promised land. And even more significant than that, you don't have to turn there, but you might jot down in your margin. In fact, I'm almost certain that if you look in your margin there, you'll see a cross-reference to John chapter 1, verse 51, in which the Lord Jesus made this statement to Nathanael. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is comparing himself to Jacob's experience here at Bethel. Jacob saw this vision of a ladder, sometimes we call it the stairway to heaven, which I don't understand why Led Zeppelin called their song Stairway to Heaven, but because it has nothing to do with this event. But it's still a pretty cool guitar uh, song. I, I learned it when I played the guitar. Anyway, I thought about playing it for you, actually, <laughs> but I won't do it. It wasn't a stairway to heaven in the sense of a stairway. It was, it was more of a ladder is probably a better translation. And notice that the angels were ascending and descending on this with God at the top. Jesus compared himself to the ladder. 
He said that the angels will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so for Jacob to call this the gate, the gateway to heaven, and for Jesus to basically say, I am that gate, you are going to see that I am the gate. I am that ladder. I am the, the, the mediator, as it were, between earth and the Lord God. So Jesus is making a very significant connection here to this very significant experience that, um, that Jacob had. Of course, Jesus is that ultimate connection that we have between earth and heaven because of his uh, death on the cross for us. So, Jacob wakes up, he dedicates this place, he names this place, uh, he names it House of God. Well, there's a principle. We've got three places and three principles that we're going to look at. The first we've seen here at Bethel, but here's the principle that emerges from this text. It's simply this, God reveals himself to us to inspire a deeper commitment. God reveals himself to us to inspire a deeper commitment. And we saw that in uh, Jacob's response. When God revealed himself in a special way to Jacob, Jacob's response was worship, and it was also commitment. He said, Lord God, you have, you have promised me that you're going to do such and so. I am going, you, will, you are going to be my God, and I'm going to demonstrate that by tithing, basically, was what he said. I'm going to give a tenth of all that I earn to you. And so, the revelation inspired in Jacob a deeper commitment. It was the same when Jesus made that statement to Nathanael. If we were to turn to John chapter 1 and look at that context, we would see Nathanael's incredible response to Jesus' words. Jesus uh, said to Nathanael, you remember that scene, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, How do you know me? Jesus says, I knew you when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip had even called you. And Nathanael goes, you are the Messiah, or you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. When Jesus revealed himself to Nathanael, it brought on a deeper commitment. It was the same with Jacob, it was the same with Nathanael, and it's the same with us. When we're reading the scriptures, or when the Lord gives you an insight in, uh, in a song, in, in, in a, a, a message, or in a sermon, in something that you hear that, di- that directs God's revelation, God's Bible, God's Scripture to your heart, it elicits and inspires a deeper commitment. And it should. In fact, that is why God does it. He does it in order to draw you closer to Him and to give you a passion for a deeper commitment. Uh, It worked in Jacob's life, and if it worked in Jacob's life, it can definitely work in ours as well. So, uh, when when you're reading the Word, make that part of your time with God. To open yourself up, to say, Lord, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to reveal yourself to me. And when you do, I want to uh, commit to you to have a deeper dedication and a deeper love for you. So, Jacob heads up north, goes up to Padanaram to Haran, and we won't look at the, all the details there because it's a, it's a story unto itself, and boy, is it a story. This is where Abraham came from, you remember. This is where Abraham's father died. This was Abraham's people, which is why Rebekah sent Jacob back up there to, uh, to go up there to hide out for a while. Jacob met his deceiving match in his uncle Laban. 
uh, Laban was a rascal. If you're familiar with that story, he was a rascal. And Jacob really met his match with his uncle. Jacob offered to work seven years for Laban in order to marry his lovely daughter, Rachel. Laban says, sure. And then Laban switches daughters at the last minute, tricking Jacob into marrying the older daughter first. And in a sense, Jacob was deceptive. Uh, uh, Laban was deceptive, but in a sense, he wasn't because he just didn't tell the whole story. So sure, you can work seven years for Rachel. Oh, I didn't mention those seven years come after the, the seven years you work for the older one first, because it's not our custom to marry off the older one first. So in order to get Rachel, as well as the older daughter, Leah, now Jacob has to work a total of 14 years. Well, he was stuck. He had no choice. And so he did it. He met his match. Interesting irony there in uh, Laban's words. It's not our custom for the younger to get what goes to the older. That should have been a stab and a twist in Jacob's conscience because Jacob had deceived himself in order for the younger to get what the older should have got. Remember? And now he was getting it back. So you see God's discipline in Jacob's life came about as a result of uh, Jacob's own deception. Interesting how the Lord works that out. So, at the end of uh, the 14 years that he works in order to get his wives, he works another six years to uh, build up his flock and basically his wealth. So, after 20 years, God appears to him in Padanaram and says, go back to Canaan. And so, Jacob packs up his wives, his kids, his flocks, and sneaks away while Laban isn't looking. And when Laban finds out, he chases him, catches up to him in what is today the Golan Heights. Back in that day, it was called Gilead. And this is, um, and they have a, a conversation there. Now, I want to show you something that uh, is kind of funny. I've always thought it was funny. This is the map that we saw. And if I can get back to a normal size here, I'll show you. This coin. Have you ever seen this coin before? Uh, it's called, well, it was when I was growing up. I saw it at a particular uh, jeweler's that I won't mention, but because they're a fantastic jeweler, and I don't want to de degrade them at all by what I'm about to say. But this, uh, this was called the Mizpah coin. You can see now at the bottom, it's called the watch over the prayer pendant. Someone has probably told them, you know, you really ought not call it that. And so they've renamed it, the watch over the prayer pendant. But still... If you were to put these two halves together, it, uh, it forms a verse that we'll see here in Genesis 31. And it was a conversation between Jacob and Laban. This uh, pendant, or this coin, as it were, it used to be a coin, now it's a heart. They've changed it up. It's all marketing. But it says, you know, may the Lord watch between, uh, between me and thee while we are apart from one another. Isn't that touching? <laughs> But if you look at the context, it's hilarious because it's not two people who really love each other and uh, may, you have half my heart while we're not together. Well, the reality is it was Jacob telling, uh, telling Laban, look, buddy, I don't trust you. May the Lord watch over you and give it to you if you don't do what's right. <laughs> so here's, here's a coin that you can wear to remind you of that. I just love that Mizpah coin. So it's probably uh, not what the jeweler had in mind at the time. But uh, So if you have that coin and you've like given it out to somebody, you know, you might want to give them something else this Christmas. Or 
if you want to do something kind of sneaky, if you don't like somebody, get this coin and give them half of it for Christmas and see what happens. <laughs> oh, don't do that. But I love that. It's just so ironic when, um, when people try to sell stuff and just slap any old Bible verse on it to, uh, to make it work out. But Genesis 31 verse 49 says, May the Lord watch between you and me while we are absent from one another. This is not a, a touching sentiment. This is Jacob saying, I don't trust you, Laban, and uh, you've made a vow, but I don't believe you're going to keep it. And so may God watch over you to make sure you do. This is a vow between two people who didn't trust, trust one another. So Genesis 32. Now, no sooner had Jacob rid himself of the threat of Laban. Now Laban has to deal. Now Jacob has to deal with another threat. The big one, Esau, the one that he ran from 20 years ago, the one that he was hoping to get away from, his problem hasn't gone away. It's still there. He's still got to face 20 years ago what he refused to face, and that in itself is a great lesson, isn't it? Stuff doesn't just go away, you know. We've got to deal with it. And if we want to stick it under the rug or brush it under the rug, the Lord God may very well do that, allow us to do that. But eventually... It comes back around, and we've got to deal with it 20 years later. Uh, what we refused to do it, deal with 20 years earlier, we might as well deal with it now and enjoy the rest of life, as opposed to our whole life having this nagging something in the back of our mind that we don't want to deal with. Let's deal with it, and then let God surprise you with the fact that He's already paved the way to make a wonderful reconciliation. So Genesis 32, right in verse 1, let's, uh, let's read that verse there. It says, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim, that's a Hebrew word that means two companies, but it's probably a figure of speech representing uh, the camp of God. Uh, the camp of God. This is God's camp, he says. And that phrase, the angels of God, it's appeared before. You know, it's actually only appeared once before. In fact, it's only mentioned twice in the whole Old Testament. I don't mean angels are only mentioned twice, but that phrase, angels of God. It's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Both are in Genesis. Both are with Jacob. One when he's leaving the land and one as he's coming back in the land. As he's leaving the land, the angels of God were ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. As he's coming back into the land, these angels meet him once again. And if you glance down, we won't read the text that comes right after this, but if you glance down, you see it's uh, the threat of Esau that's coming. That's the next part of this context. And that gives us a really critical principle, a very helpful principle, uh, which is our second principle here for, from the text. And that is that God is with us long before our spiritual struggle. God is with us before our spiritual struggle. See, Genesis 32 begins with the angels of God meeting him. And then uh, Jacob has to deal with Esau. God is with Jacob before Esau has, uh, Jacob has to deal with Esau. So this lesson at God's camp, or at Mahanaim, 
is that God is with us already long before we're having to deal with this spiritual struggle. And so whatever it is that you're afraid of, whatever it is that, that's got you fearful of the future, that you've run away to Padanaram to not have to face, the reality is God's already with you. When he does call you to eventually deal with it, you can have, a, have an assurance that God's already with you, that God's camp is where he is leading you, and that you are not alone. And it's also a good reminder that the struggle that's in our lives ultimately is a spiritual struggle. We tend to look around and point at people or at finances or at a pandemic or whatever it seems to be the culprit to what's going on in our lives right now. But reality, this is God's camp. The struggle ultimately is a spiritual struggle that we're dealing with. Paul, the apostle, reminded us of that when he said in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is a spiritual struggle first and foremost. And so, if our struggle is a spiritual struggle, then we fight that struggle with spiritual weapons. Not with our own wits or wisdom, not by trying to manipulate uh, situations like Rebecca did, like Jacob did, to try to make things happen in our timing. But we do it the way Jacob is about to do it, uh, and then he blows it again, but the way he's about to do it, and that is by prayer. If you glance down at the context right after this, that we won't read the details of, but you see Jacob praying, and boy, did he pray. He prayed hard. And when fear floods our hearts, when we feel overwhelmed by our situation, um, and the true source of our fears is revealed, then prayer is God drives us to our knees in prayer, and our spiritual lives hold the solution to our fears. And in a sense, it really all comes down to this. Look, is this God's camp or not? Is it God's camp or not? Are we really going to trust that God is with us? Or will we panic and try to seize control ourselves? So, great prayer, Jacob. And then he gets up and it's like he never even said it. Because he immediately goes back to try to controlling things. And if you look at the, the verses there, just glance down through them, you remember he sends gifts on ahead to try to placate his brother as if this is going to remove all the wrong that's been done years ago and all the bitterness that could have potentially built up in the last 20 years of, of Jacob not dealing with it. Here's some gifts. Maybe that'll help. And then assuming that it probably won't help, Jacob divides up his family and puts the most expendable ones in the front, and he puts the most precious things in the very back. Again, just trying to control the situation and not trusting God. So, big surprise, God's not done with Jacob. Look down at verse 23, still in chapter 32, verse 23. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Let me just pause there for a second and look at those words. Jacob was left alone. The last 20 years or 20 years ago when Jacob crossed this stream, he was alone. And he had nothing. He had a staff. And he crossed over and now God's brought him back and he has 
a huge family. He's rich. He's wealthy, but he still has the exact same problem that he was running from. And once again, it's just him and God. It's just Jacob by himself. He is left alone. So let's continue. Jacob is left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. Uh, But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The pronouns aren't uh, mentioned here, so we're not real. Sh- it's not easy to tell who's saying what, so you have to sort of back up. But it's uh, it's the man that Jacob is wrestling with, whom we understand to be the Lord, the Lord God, the angel of the Lord, asks, "What is your name?" And he says, "Jacob." And he says, "Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have stri- striven with God and with men and have prevailed." Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen the face, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Well, once again, let me show you where this. Uh, occurred. We can get past our penance here. So Jacob comes down and would have crossed right in this area. If I can enlarge this again, you can see the Jabbok River is where he crossed. So the Jabbok comes on down and runs into the Jordan River at this place. And this is where Abraham crossed. This is where Jacob would have crossed when he left. So this is where Jacob's crossing as he comes back up. And uh, I don't know that it's significant, but see this where it says Adam. This is where uh, the Jordan River would stop years later to allow Joshua to cross. I don't know if that's significant at all. So many things are so close in Israel that uh, so many things happen so close to one another. I tend to want to try to find significance in everything that happens right beside each other, but it's such a small place, everything has to happen pretty close proximity. But Jacob is crossing over uh, right in this area, but before he crosses, he has this event with God. And here's a picture, if I can forward it. This is a picture of uh, Peniel and the Jabbok River. This is clearly in the spring when things are green and beautiful. And uh, we could probably try to do some figuring out from the verses when Jacob crossed. But this is what the area looks like. So it's not hard to picture because not much has changed, it seems. Not hard to picture Jacob leading his flocks, leading his wives, and then being left alone here to wrestle with God. And here's another picture of actually in the stream. So you can picture, you know, the the Lord God and Jacob wrestling uh, until uh, daybreak. In uh, somewhere in this very area. Not sure exactly where, but definitely not far. Jacob is alone, just as he was 20 years ago, and Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. This was Jacob's request. Bless me, Lord. How ironic, because this is the very thing he sought from by deception 20 years earlier. And here he is asking the Lord God for it. 
And God honored Jacob's dogged determination to receive a blessing, but only after the displaced hip wrenched uh, this prayer and in a sense also wrenched a confession from Jacob. Because when he asked him, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. The name Jacob, you probably know in Hebrew is Yaakov, which means the heel grabber or the heel catcher because he was born holding his brother's heel, which became sort of metaphoric also for his personality. He was a heel catcher. He was a deceiver. And uh, so when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, that's nothing less than a confession. Who are you? Basically, God says, Jacob says, I'm a deceiver. And at that moment, God says, as soon as he confesses that, God says, no longer is your name going to be Jacob. But we're now going to call you Israel, because you have striven with God and have prevailed. And that didn't look like Jacob prevailed. I mean, his hips torn out. He's totally at the mercy of this, of this uh, stronger individual, and yet God calls it a victory. Why? Because Jacob finally surrenders. Jacob finally surrenders. And here's the lesson that comes from this, from Peniel. It's a very simple principle that God's blessing comes to us through our surrender to Him. God's blessing comes to us through our surrender to Him. We see this principle all throughout the Scriptures, don't we? Uh, We won't turn there, but you might have in your margin a cross-reference, and if not, you might jot down this cross-reference to Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. Hosea 12, verse 4, basically the prophet Hosea would later record this incident in Jacob's life of Jacob wrestling, his wrestling match with the Lord, as an example of weeping as well as winning. In other words, weakness that is a strength. And the Apostle Paul, of course, uses that in a great principle in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about, when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, We see this modeled in Jesus' life when he's in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. It is through surrender to God that we are victorious. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? That our victory comes when we surrender. But the reality is that's how God operates. Jacob learned that his manipulative, deceiving ways was not the means of getting God's blessing. Of course, the same is true in our lives. God wanted to bless him, but not until Jacob surrendered and uh, allowed there to be a pathway of blessing into Jacob's life. Now, this, this may be an uncomfortable truth for you. It definitely is an uncomfortable truth for me that our Heavenly Father may take you places. He probably has taken you places, and it's taken time. It's taken years, perhaps, And you discovered that at any moment, God can finish that struggle with one little touch. Bink, and your hip is pulled out. Whatever it takes to all of a sudden for God to do a very small thing from His perspective that seems to just pull the slats out from under you and and for you to realize what's building up all these years for this moment God is in control. God can be trusted. I simply need to surrender to Him and to quit trying to control all this myself. 
This was Jacob's major problem. And to be honest, as the book of Genesis goes on, Jacob still hadn't learned this fully. Jacob's still going to wrestle with God, uh, with his children. As the Joseph narrative would go on to show, he wasn't about to give up Joseph, and he was, Jacob wasn't about to give up Benjamin. God still had a lot of work to do in Jacob's heart. Even though he teaches us great things in our lives by dislocating our hips, it's just a, one of many things that the Lord uses in the path of our growing to know him deeper. So we've seen three different events in Jacob's life at three different places, and each of these places has given us a lesson. Let me just repeat them for you. At Bethel, we learn that God reveals himself to us to inspire a deeper commitment. At Mahanaim, God is with us long before our spiritual struggle. And then finally, at Peniel, God's blessing comes to us through our surrender to him. I love that the Bible includes Jacob because, uh, in a sense, like Peter in the New Testament, boy, we need to see somebody blowing it so that we know that we're normal. <laughs> and that God's grace extends to Jacob. We know that God, God's grace extends to us. You know, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul said, he quotes uh, the Lord God saying, Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved. That doesn't mean hate in the sense of, like we would think, hate, but rather chosen. I have chosen this one, and I have not chosen this one. What's so marvelous about that is not that, uh, that, God, that God hated Esau, but that God chose Jacob. It clearly wasn't because of Jacob. And I think we can each look at our lives and see the grace of God as well. And Lord, why in the world did you choose us? And let his grace inspire us to a deeper devotion and a deeper love and faithfulness to our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, we're grateful to you for these chapters that we've surveyed the life of Jacob, at least to this point. Grateful to you for the honest revelation that you've given us of who he is his deception, and yet in the same time, his honest striving to connect with you and to the best of his weak ability to follow you and to, uh, to yearn for your blessing. That's our lives. And we can see through these principles of each of these places, from Bethel to Mahanaim to Penuel, that all these places we've been to, and you take us to these uncomfortable places to give us a, a greater revelation of who you are, that, that our devotion may be deeper. You, you bring us to these places reminding us that you're already with us even before the struggle, and that, uh, the, that the blessing that you want to extend in our lives comes as we surrender to you. So give us that strength, Lord. Give us that courage to, uh, to follow these principles as your word clearly teaches us today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks.